Now, when we look here at the spiritual climate that is in Israel, I think we're going to be able to pinpoint exactly where that comes from. And in fact, I would actually argue to you today that the spiritual climate of First Samuel in Israel is not one of the themes of this book, but it is rather the theme of the book. This is the primary thing that we see in our text, that there is a poor spiritual climate in Israel, and that is coming from the fact that there were leaders who were in place who were not fulfilling the call the way that they should have. There is corruption in those spiritual leaders, and it is affecting everything that is happening. Now, this type of profaning of the sacrifice and worship like we're going to see is actually very much akin to the state of many leaders in churches, even in our day. And so what I hope that we see is that God regards his church, his people and his temple very seriously. And sin, if we are a part of the body of believers, sin must be called out. Righteousness must be established and God must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 2 and 12 just to pick up where we left off and and go from there. So it says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that When any man offered sacrifice, a priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man, who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young man was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the man treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel However, was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. She then, so then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. 
And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you score my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded you for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever." The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that, and this that shall come upon your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's pray. Lord God, as we get ready to dive into the word, just reading this evokes so much emotion and, and um, feelings, God, that we are going to have to reconcile. But more than anything, God, help us see that you have a standard of expectation that you have called your believers to, even specifically that you have called the men of God to. Lord, let us see that when faithful men... Um, lead well, then it affects everything around them. But the same is true when unfaithful men do not lead well, then it also affects everything around them as well. So God, help us see what the obligation of the, the pastor is, but also what the obligation of us as people are as well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So obviously we have just seen here, we are giving some strong parallels between the life that the sons of Eli would have lived versus the life that Samuel would have lived and with his family as well. The author opens up here and is, is actually quite clear. It doesn't mince words that he describes these people, these two men, Hophni and Phinehas, as worthless men. Now, the Hebrew is an interesting word which actually translates to sons of Belial, meaning that they lacked worth. They were actually without value. Now, you know, this goes against some of the narratives that we hear in our world, which always tells us, no, you have all this value. You are worth. You are this. You are that. But actually, 
what God says here is that they are actually worthless men. Why? Well, if you look at their life, it is their handling of the priesthood. In order to be a priest, as we should know, there were strict parameters on what they wore, how they lived, and how they offered the sacrifices before God. And violating those commandments and those parameters could have both immediate and eternal consequences. What are the immediate consequences? Their sins were completely setting the tone for where they were in society. Look at Judges 2 and 10. I mentioned to you before that Judges actually parallels what's happening in 1 Samuel. It says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. After a generation of priests and workers, there was another generation, that being the generation of Eli and his sons, who Judges says here, as 1 Samuel does as well, who did not know the Lord. Now, this isn't to imply that they had no knowledge of who God was. They rather actually had a lot of knowledge of God. They had to grow up and be cultivated to be in the service of the Lord. So, yeah, they would have known a lot about God. But one thing that we have learned in time is that knowledge of God does not mean that you know God. They would have known the proper procedures regarding the offerings of the Lord. But none of these things provided them with an intimate relationship with the true and living God. And so this is an issue. There are men who are in place, who are supposed to be the mouthpiece of God, who are supposed to be the mediators, and as flawed as they all were, they were supposed to be the mediators between man and God. They were supposed to be the thermostat for the spiritual condition of Israel. And they're not. They were a moral wreck, and the whole of the nation where they lived was affected by it. Now, this seems like a very broad concept when we first hear it, but I actually want to narrow this down so that we can understand the impact of these men's living. During this same time that they were rejecting the laws of God, they set a precedence for what was happening with the individuals as well. I want you to think about it. If the priests are doing what's right in their own eyes, then everybody else is going to follow their lead as well. Look at what they are guilty of. As there were people who were coming up to offer their sacrifices, they would take a large fork and they would pilfer the meat off of the sacrifice and take it for themselves. This was abhorrent, right? Now, I bet, however, most of us are thinking, all right, what's the big deal? Like, they take a little meat from the sacrifice. Might have been a little hungry. But it actually is a big deal. 
They were actually profaning and using sacrifices that God required and using them for their own gain. In Leviticus, there were strict instructions, and one of the things that they were supposed to do would be that they had to cut off the fat and offer it as a separate sacrifice and burn it apart from the meat. So they are completely disregarding the instructions that the priests have been given. But not only that, the meat that was brought by these men as a sacrifice was the best meat that they had. It was the best offering they had. They had actually chosen not to offer that sacrifice for themselves and eat it, but rather give it to the Lord. Notice something that they say here to them when they were bringing the meat. They actually told them, don't roast the meat before you bring it. Don't bring it to us. And they said, let me, let me understand what's going on here. They said, for God will not accept this meat. They are now, who are supposed to be the mouthpiece of God, the mediators between man and God, are now speaking on behalf of God things that God had not said. This is why you should always caution yourself when any person, preacher, anybody says, the Lord told me, your response should be what chapter and what verse. They tell them, do not bring cooked or boiled meat because God will only accept it raw. Now, why are they saying that? Because the people were supposed to offer that best portion of meat. And so they would kill it and bring the best meat to them. And so because they were afraid that they wouldn't, they said, just bring us raw meat. Don't bring us secondary meat. Now, this whole process of giving was first established to us in Genesis. Genesis 4 and 4 says, and Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And Jehovah had respect unto Abel and to his offering. He brought the first and the best. The reason they brought the first and the best was because it was a sacrifice to God. But it was also symbolic of the penalty of sin, which was that blood was shed and that because of sin, something had to die. Yet these men profane it. How, though, does that wickedness affect a nation? Seems like a localized issue. Seems like it should have stayed between those two men. I already mentioned that these people will see it, but I want you to see the direct impact of sinful clergy and, and how it has on a family and a, and a home and eventually society. Remember, husbands have been called to be the priests of their homes. But how would they feel if every time that man went up, they had these two bombs who were stealing their sacrifices and eating them? Not only would they not want to participate in the sacrifice, but they would much less be inclined to have any direction or devotion to God or morality in their own homes. Y'all don't think that's the same for us today? Even today, men who are supposed to be the priests of their home are clued in to what wicked men in pulpits are doing. And their wives and their children will go to church, but the men stay at home. They're supposed to be the priests who are leading in worship, yet they see the sin of many people who claim to be pastors and preachers and teachers of the truth. 
The spiritual gap in our society is the same as it was yesterday. It is because there are too many worthless sons in the pulpits. And it's spreading like wildfires to our home. And we may think, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, that person is so nice, but they're kind. They do good things. If you get up here and you are worthless, you are worthless. Don't care how nice you are. I don't care what good deeds you do. If this pulpit is used to profane the truth, you are worthless. Many men are watching today as these preachers and pastors are pilfering the sacrifices of his faithful ones and they are taking a lead from what they are doing with them and what is feeling right in their own eyes. We have seen the ramifications of this in our own homes, in our societies, in our government, and everywhere. And it shouldn't surprise us. We have been told since we were young that a bad apple can spoil the whole of the bunch. We all probably remember being in school when we were of of age to be, and there was always that one child who, no matter how good the class was, it was that one child who could totally shift the climate and the atmosphere of that class. Those who God has called to be faithful pastors will set a positive spiritual climate. But likewise, the wolves are not only deceiving, but they are also producing like-minded people. The Bible tells us that in the last days that there would be false teachers who would arise. But it also tells us that the people would get for themselves teachers who also satisfy their passions. Look at how they use their positions as leverage to manipulate the people. They say, if you don't give us what we want, then we will take it by force. Now, when we read this, we probably don't think uh, this type of bullying and bullying and abuse doesn't happen in pulpits anymore. But it does. Personally, I've experienced it in churches. I know many people have experienced it. There is even a podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And what it does, it details Mars Hill's church, which was a large church in Seattle, and the abusive way that the pastor spoke and handled the people there, but also how the leadership cultivated an atmosphere for it. There There are far more sordid details that came out of the life of an apologist who was actually using his influence as a means to get sexual favors done for him. This just happened. He just died. When this type of immorality is rampant in the church, what do you think is going to happen to the world? This is what 1 Peter 4 and 15 says. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If we, the righteous of God, be scarcely saved, what does that mean for the ungodly? If we who claim to know the Lord are being caught up in the same lewd behavior, then where is the moral line drawn? Who will bring the gospel to the lost if we are living just like the lost? The author here does a contrast of the behavior of the sons of Eli against what Samuel was doing. Samuel, he says, was ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord so they would return to their home. Contrary to the sons of Eli, the son of Hannah and Elkanah was devoting himself to the Lord. But why? Why is he devoting himself to the Lord? Because if you remember, when the rest of the world was immoral, when the rest of the world was giving to their se- themselves in their own lusts, Elkanah and Hannah every year went up and offered worship and sacrifice to the Lord. While Eli the priest was letting his sons run amok, Hannah dedicated that her child, before that child was born, would be lent to the Lord. Surely Eli had known for years the wickedness of his sons. The man that comes to him even mentions that he was participating in taking of that choice he is meat. And we're going to learn a little detail about Eli when he dies after learning about the death of his sons. The Bible's going to mention something. I don't think that it's going to mention it on accident. It's going to mention that because of his large weight. Why had Eli gotten so large? Because he was eating the meat that his sons were pilfering as well. He knew what his children were doing. Knowing that they were living such wicked lives, he neglected to address his children and their sin properly. Their immorality knew no bounds. They were laying with women even at the entrance at the temple. How could they grow to such wickedness? Because their father failed to raise them properly. The failure of the father to correct and admonish them. The position of the people in the homes affects everything that our kids become. What our world becomes, the complaints we have about it, is directly connected to what we do at home. And more than anything, we see that Eli chose the easier route. Just let boys be boys. But you see, the problem is, is that boys become men very quickly. And we have a finite amount of time to impact their lives. 
Yes, on one hand, this sermon is about priests who profane God, but who permitted this? Now, I will tell you, there's a, there's a stat now that says that every year with every passing generation, kids are getting younger and younger about how much time the parent has to impact them. About 50 years ago, you had until they were about 17 years old where your words and your actions could have a long-lasting impact on them. And then it became 15 and then 14. Last I checked, it was 13. That if you have not made a significant impact specifically with the gospel in the life of a child, you probably won't. Now, that doesn't undermine the gospel. We know that the gospel can save and redeem anybody at any part of life. But it does tell us that we should not wait as parents to try to get through to our children. Now, Eli finally had a stream of consciousness to reprimand his children. And he makes this poignant statement. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who? Who can intercede for him? Unfortunately, however, it was too little too late. It says that it was God's will to put them to death. Now, I say this at home all the time. Me and Chris have had this conversation several times. It is easier to shape a child than it is to break an adult. It is easier to shape a child than it is to break an adult. The writer, again, is contrasting what is happening between the parties. And while the sons of Eli slip further into this moral abyss, Samuel, however, grew in stature with the Lord. Now, we're not going to be able to finish all of this today, but there are some things that I do want you to remember about this sermon. First thing is, is that we are accountable to God. We are accountable to God. If you are a parent or if you are in any atmosphere or place where you are able to affect the life of children, you are not just accountable to God, but you are also accountable to those children. You are not just accountable to God and those children, but you are also accountable to society in how you influence those children. Jesus makes it clear. He says, if anybody would deceive or lead these little ones astray, it is better for them to tie a millstone around their neck and jump into the sea. We are accountable to God with also who we allow to be shepherds before us. We are accountable to God, to holding those shepherds accountable to the word of God and how they live. Those shepherds, myself included, are accountable to God. I'm accountable to you. I'm accountable to society to be the man that God has called me to be. I am not accountable to myself because if I am merely accountable to myself, I will never look at myself and find anything 
that I'm guilty of. I am not accountable to myself. I'm first accountable to God. I'm then accountable to my home, to my wife, to my children, to do what is right in their eyes and in the sight of the Lord. I'm then accountable to the church to do what is right. Now, I have that accountability here for myself in this church, but the unfortunate reality is that there are many places where that accountability does not exist. In fact, we learn that the majority of churches exist without that level of accountability, and it has a dramatic impact on what happens in our world. So what should we do? One, we should devote ourselves to the truth. We should find ourselves in a place where the truth is going forth, but we should also pray. We should pray for those pastors, those preachers, those other churches, those people that attend those places, that God will meet them with the truth, that he will save them and change their hearts. But we should also pray that if that doesn't happen, that the Lord will allow, give grace and mercy to those people who attend those places to find the right place to go where they can hear the truth. And we can also maintain, in the meantime, our personal accountability to the truth and to the Word of God. So I hope that we have seen in this sermon today, and we'll pick up um, next week, will be kind of a part two just so we can finish it, just what the impact on society is when men of God do not take hold of the position well. It affects everything. The very fabric of society, the very fabric, the lines of morality are affected. And I don't know if you realize this, but every time that one of those more lines in the sand gets erased, there is always this quick jump to try to draw that line in the sand again. And I'm telling you now, once the lines of morality have been crossed, there is no going back. Right now, the number one swimmer, the number one swimmer in the nation for women's swimming is a man. Do you think they're going to ever go back over that moral line once they cross it? No. It requires of us to stand up for the truth, to live as we've been called to live, and to be the men in the pulpits and the women of God, however he has called you to serve, that he has called us to serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you for truth. God, the fabric of our society should be held up by faithful men of God who will not just know about you, but who will know you, who will know you intimately, who will worship you in spirit and in truth. God, it is easy to be given in to the temptations of this world to not seek for accountability. But God, we have been called to hold ourselves to the standard of your righteousness, a standard, God, which we are unable to meet without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, every single one of us will fail to meet the standard of the law if left to our own strength. But God, you have given us a permanent, perfect 
mediator that will not fail the way the priests, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas fail. Who will not take for himself, but rather the true mediator who has given of himself as a sacrifice so that we would have an opportunity at eternal life. God, if there is anybody who is listening, who is watching, who is here today, who doesn't know you, God, let them know that there is an eternal weight for the decisions they make. And God, that none of us, not one of us, will escape your judgment. God, those of us who know you will not be judged according to our works, but according to what Jesus has done on our behalf. But God, those of us who do not know you will be judged according to our works and condemned because of them. Because we know that you sent your son so that none of us who believe will have to perish, but that we can inherit eternal life. And so I pray, God, if there is anybody here who doesn't know you, that you will open their eyes, that you will open their ears, open their hearts, and save them. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.